cuartilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those, as we are to donations to our enterprise. Please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truett. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And we went from one island... Uh, which I guess was about a week ago. And now we've come to another island um, in the stream of islands that we've left behind us. Uh, and it's pretty much like an undiscovered place. We don't know what we're going to find here. Mm. And, you know, just in the resonating with the idea that this these sessions you know, are kind of islands in themselves. Islands of time and of thought. I've been rushing around trying to make my wife's bed, which is also my bed, which is kind of a little island in our bedroom. Good. Yeah. So anyway, you were going to lay some storm on us. Who, me? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah, well, I, I, I've been rereading Shakespeare's The Tempest. Uh, I, I know it came up um, last podcast. Briefly, Sam, you had pointed out that this was Shakespeare's only nod to the Americas because it uh, engaged a travel log from William Strachey, who was marooned on the island of Bermuda. Uh, published, um, the, the play was written rather, what, in about 1610 or 1611. And uh, I was just struck by the fact that uh, in Act 2, Scene 1, we have a number of the characters, uh, Alfonso, 
who is the king of Naples, and his brother Sebastian, and Antonio, who's the uh, Duke of Milan. He usurped his uh, dukedom from Prospero, and then the goodly Gonzalo, and then two noblemen, Adrian and Francisco. And something that happens across the first scene of Act One is that on this island, in their conversations with one another, in some ways, like their uh, their true motivations, their true self, something uh, deep within each. And for Gonzalo, it's something positive and utopian. For uh, Sebastian Antonio, it's something um, murderous. But like so the island, the experience of being islanded brings out that which is um, beneath. Almost midwifing some, uh, yeah, I think the deeper, mo- I wouldn't say un- so unconscious you- content, but the deeper motivations, uh, the uh, the deeper worldview of each character. And it uh-huh. happens gradually you- over the scene. I just thought it was very interesting. Really that me- sense of the underneath surfacing on an island, are you locating that in the text, or is that... Um, <laughs> Something that, you know, is the sort of aura that you get from the text or, you know, from seeing the Tempest. I think it's present in the text. For for example, um, Sebastian, the bro- brother of um, Alonzo, begins to plot to overthrow his brother. Like, whatever's been there beneath the surface back in Italy, back in uh, Naples and uh, in Milan comes to the surface on the island. The island is like a cauldron, I think, that uh, calls forth. You know, just I'm referring to it as that which is beneath, but I don't know if that's the right language. Uh-huh. But I know, uh, I feel that deserts and islands have something in common in that, like, hmm. material in us, not material, content, uh, impulses, fears, hopes, desires, visions, don't they tend to come out? Hmm. Mm. In these two geographical contexts, I think mm. so, but mm. I don't know where that comes from. I just may be imagining it right now. Seems true uh-huh. of Manhattan that it's a place where people's lower, usually lower, but sometimes higher selves are kind of revealed in on this island with these other two million people. And that's not even a lonely island. I mean, it's, you know, the fact that, that, uh, in the Tempest, what is the name of the island? Do we even know? It's an, it's an unnamed, um, island that's uninhabited, but of course it is inhabited by Caliban and Ariel, but it's described in the, the, um, Shakespeare's notes as uninhabited island. Hmm. Yeah, I just read it too. I mean, it's the last, I'm kind of always reading a Shakespeare play. Now I'm reading The Taming of the Shrew. But the last one I read before that was uh, The Tempest. So it's very fresh in my mind. So I can agree with you about your idea about people's inner motivations coming out. And like Prospero, his his magic is only possible on that island. As soon as he leaves the island, you know, he's he's no longer going to have his power. There's something site-specific about (laughs) <laughs> well, also, it's the fact that, you know, in the final iteration of Prospero and the profound um, dis- disengagement that he goes through 
And he speaks of his staff. Now, that's something, you know, that would be fun to read. Um, you know, he, he buries his, uh, book, thir- uh, 30, 40 fathoms down, 50 fathoms down, you know, and here I, you know, um, uh, you know, leave this, this, um, gift, which is Shakespeare's. Abjure. I remember the word abjure. Lake, <laughs> globe, world. And he left it on this island. And I would, and I would posit that among all the people alive within that sort of, um, you know, mm. just emerging kind of out of a sleep, um, culture, um, you know, out there in Europe, that Shakespeare is the one cat who would understand that the new world was where the the true articulation of mm. his humanist call would manifest. I mean, in an ideal world, I think that would be true, you know? Mm. Mm. From a Marxist point of view, too, I mean, I think of uh, Shakespeare as the quintessential uh, entrepreneur, I, I read that book or listened to it on tape. Will in the world, I think. Oh, it's by called. Stephen Greenblatt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've read. I've read in there. And uh, he talks about how come Shakespeare is so different from all the other playwrights of his time, and part of it is a class thing. They were all, almost all of them, went to Oxford or Cambridge, and were a bunch of dissolute drunks. Kind of like uh, like rock stars burning themselves out, and Shakespeare, meanwhile, saving his pennies, he owns ten percent of his theatrical company. He's buying up land like mad in uh, Stratford on Avon. He's making money faster than you can print it. He's a capitalist. He's writing these plays for a profit. In part. And uh, he's got to write one a year because they need a new play every year. And that's what uh, America is going to be, too. It's going to be founded, you know, I'm talking about European America, the tragedy, you might say, of America, founded by hustlers uh, trying to make a buck, entrepreneurs who start these corporations, the Dutch East India Company. They're, uh, they're like Shakespeare. They want to make money, and they want to express themselves by uh, subjugating the uh, natives. <laughs> uh-huh. And that he was just using the means of production that were available to him in his time. Or given his, you know, talents. You know, he was a guy who could write plays. So he found yeah. a way to make money out of it. And I think that's one reason maybe his plays are so ambitious. They're just filled. I mean, they're great plays. I think he's. But what you're also greatest. saying, though, is that the medium called forth from this consciousness called Shakespeare, this amazing art. You know, he added fifteen hundred words to the English language. I've um, heard all that. You know, yeah. manifestation of. A description of psychological insight of, um, you know, lot, all that. Um, 
But if he had been born, say, in the 20th century, what, would he have made movies? Probably. TV shows. Like, that's where the, <laughs> that's where the uh, bang is. And in which case, that whole um, breath would have been suppressed. Isn't that interesting? What do you mean? If your model holds Sparrow, which I think is not true. I mean, Shakespeare was an artist. Yeah. He didn't no, do it just to make about- a buck. I'm saying from a kind of, what's the word, economic viewpoint. Well, according to Marx, as I understand Marx, which is a little weak, uh, weakly, is, uh, you know, the capitalist was a revolutionary force originally. It's destroying feudalism. That's its job. So it's, it's, it's revolutionary, just as revolutionary as socialism would be under communism is, is, um, capitalism under feudalism. So, Shakespeare, part of what makes Shakespeare so exciting is he's this, uh, to me, the quintessential Marxist image of Shakespeare is King Lear. This guy's a king. He's supposedly ordained by God. He's almost a god on earth. And here he is completely insane. He's a nut. He's a madman. The fool is smarter than him. So, so, uh, Shakespeare's subverting all the certainties of uh, feudalism. He's telling us these are no longer really true. And I think that's connected, in a way, to the new world. The new world is a place where feudalism will be dead and uh, capitalism will triumph. And this new, you know, dispensation will take place. I'm just agreeing with you, Sam, in a weird way. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Yeah. I don't know how germane this is, but there are a lot of um, readers of this text who have suggested that it's... uh, it's it's about um, writing and it's about it's about art. It's it's metafiction. It's uh, ars poetica. Mm-hmm. That that it really is about um, the artist and the world and the power of the artist to uh, to create the world in which he and perhaps the viewer uh, or the reader uh, lives in at least for a time. To paraphrase uh, Gertrude Stein. To compose in language is to compose a way of being in the world. Mm. And Prospero is uh, author of the the reality that manifests across the uh, the scenes and acts of the the Tempest. But um, that magic only has so much power. It uh, you know it can create some things, but it can't influence all things. And uh, at the end, he, he gives it up. Our revels are now ended, right? He's going to return to, to to Milan, and every third thought will be his death. Yeah, or or death itself. Right? Or death itself. Yeah, he's yeah. going to be an he's going to be an old man. He destroys his books, and the only place that he was able to enact his magic is on this island. But what about Miranda, his daughter, falling in love? He doesn't seem too happy about that, right? That, that doesn't fit his playbook, as I recall. Well, he. I, you know, he orchestrates it so they will fall in love, but he also simultaneously resists it. Well, I thought there was an aspect of him testing the yeah, he, suitor. He, yeah. he, does, he doesn't want Ferdinand, right, to um, have too easy access to his daughter. He wants there to, right, there to be some struggle. He wants there to be um, hmm. some trial, some, some, uh, some process there, some romantic process. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a famous line in the book of Exodus where uh, Moses asked Pharaoh, let my people go, and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He makes Pharaoh say no. 
I was thinking about this the other day. They asked Mayor Baba, uh, why is there evil in the world? And Mayor Baba said, to thicken the plot. <laughs> to thicken then, the plot. <laughs> and it's like God, you know, was worried the book of Exodus is not going to have any conflict. So he hardens Pharaoh's heart, great phrase in English, and uh, to keep things interesting. And it's a little bit like what Prospero does with between Miranda and her lover, I forget his name. Ferdinand, right? Ferdinand, yeah. Ferdinand, the, the son of uh, hmm. the son of Alonzo, king of Naples. So pretty much everything that happens, everything that happens in the play is what Prospero wants to happen. There's no kinks in the well. Caliban pisses him off. That's well, yeah. Clear. And and also like uh, like he has this famous mask. What is it in Act Three? But it gets interrupted. He doesn't have like complete control. Huh. Uh, there are there are limits to his power. There are limits to his magic. I mean, he can't get them back to Italy, for example. Oh, good point. Yeah. You know, they're on this island. He's looking. You know, he wants his daughter to return to Europe. He can't. He can't do everything. Well, he can create the the tempest. He can create the shipwreck that will cause all these uh, uh, series of circumstances that will return them to uh, Italy. Right. There. Um, the the. Um, party on the ship is returning from Algier, where Alonzo hmm. has just married his daughter off to an African. That's there. not really on the way from uh, from Algeria to... Uh, <laughs> well, this early this modern geography, right? <laughs> I think they knew that much geography. I guess they... I mean, I guess that maybe it was a big uh, storm that blew him 3,000 miles off course. Must have been a significant storm, but Prospero dominates the the island, does he not? He's not just a um, benevolent magician. He he banishes Sycorax, uh, right? And he uh, yeah, the, he, the witch that's the, the, witch, the father, the mother of uh, Caliban. Ariel's essentially a indentured servant, and yeah. Caliban um, is enslaved. Caliban curses him. That's like. You know, his one uh, power, like Caliban is, I mean, I don't, you know, if anybody will listen to this, I'm sure we'll get hate mail for this, but he's a little bit like the Native Americans who like got subjugated by the, uh, by the Europeans, but never kind of lost their, their honor, you know, never became pure slaves. In fact, we're, they failed. The Europeans failed to enslave the, uh, the, the Native Americans. And, you know, Caliban, he says something like, I'll use all my power to curse, some famous line like that. Yeah, it's, uh, you taught me language, and my <laughs> profit on it is, I know how to curse. The red plague rid you for learning me your language. <laughs> the red plague. <laughs> Sounds like something the American Indian movement of 1972 would say. Pretty crazy. But so... He, yeah, I mean Shakespeare. He's, I mean, he's, his mind is so interesting, like that. He, or you know, um, the Taming of the Shrew is like this too, of course, where he'll create. I mean, it's famous, not an original thought, but he'll create some villain, and then uh, you know, Shakespeare will just fall in love with the villain. <laughs> he'll forget that the villain is the villain, and he'll kind of make the villain the most interesting character in the play, like Iago in some ways. Yeah. Right from Othello. all of them, all the bad guys are Richard the Third, Claudius. You know all the most, and uh, I don't know in uh, in Julius Caesar, I guess Brutus is the villain, right? 
And I think Shakespeare was a student of the consciousness of kings, mm. um, and particularly bad kings, because that mm. sparrow is bad for business. <laughs> kings? Bad kings are bad for business? Yeah. yeah. Well, kings in general but, are bad for business. You know, the I think the Dutch were a, uh, what's the word, uh, well, we are a uh, representative democracy. No. Yeah, I think Venice and Holland uh, were republics. That's the word I'm searching for. They they didn't have kings. And they could do the best business, the most business, because the kings get in the way. They want a piece of the money. They want they don't want the money to flow so much because they want everything to be about them. So uh, you're better off with no king if you want to do business, I think. You know what's a really interesting poem about art in islands? just occurred to me, you guys like Frank O'Hara or not? Yeah. Oh, I my do. God. Yeah. Do you know his poem, True Account of Talking to the Sun? Oh, on, yeah. Uh, on uh, on Fire Island. Yeah, famous poem. Um, but that's the poem, I believe, if my memory serves correct, where he, he uh, wrote the line about making your own days. Huh. Right? And he's on this island, Fire Island. He's fallen asleep on the beach. Huh. Uh, and he has this uh, poetic vision involving um, the Russian poet Mayakovsky. Right. right. So he's he wrote talking, a similar poem, right? Wrote, he wrote a similar right. poem. And the son, the son talks to him and uh, encourages him right, to, uh, to make his own days, which I've always thought of as an Ars Poetica sort of thing of, you know, creating your own universe, creating your own island mm. um, through the compositional act, mm. through art. And that, mm. that poem, I just called it up, that poem ends um, darkly as well. Sun don't go, I was awake at last. No go I must, they're calling me. Who are they? Rising, he said. Someday you'll know, they're calling to you too. Darkly he rose, and then I slept. In some ways, analogous to The Tempest, right? In terms mm-hmm. of that return to Milan and every third thought being mortality. Mm. Slept, meaning kind of like reference to death, you mean? Yeah, and I think, uh, doesn't Shakespeare say in that famous uh, soliloquy that Sam was referencing? I think it's uh, Act 4. Rounded with a sleep. Rounded with a sleep, yeah. Oh, forgot about that. I think I read somewhere recently, I don't know where, that like some people think that's the worst Frank O'Hara poem because it's the most, most like a real poem, kind of, the most conventional. I love that poem. Yeah, it is a very lovable poem, though I had forgotten about its existence. And I was going to talk about actually how uh, islands beget islands. I, I wrote this poem. I'm going to read it now. Um, oh, great. And I I put it in my uh, novella, The Princeton Diary. I don't know why I put it in there. I think I was looking through my poems, and I sort of liked the poems, so I put it in. It's called Alaska and Hawaii. Alaska and Hawaii entered the United States in 1959. Together they include 1,402 islands. Is that Hallelujah, so? yeah. Huh? Yeah, yes. I mean, I looked it up. I think I added them up myself. You know, I used my skills. 
I probably like asked the computer to add them up, but I looked up the number, as I recall, I looked up the number on Wikipedia for each, you know, state and added them together and I got that number. I want to circle back then or just sort of hover at this moment, which is like, um, for me, what is the essence of what an island is or what we're talking about? And I was thinking, Andrew, about what you said about the nature of the desert and the nature of the island having some rhyme, you know. Mm. And um, for me, I think the nature of the island uh, most uh, that I've experienced most is on a boat in, a, in mm. an ocean, like a small boat in the middle of the ocean. That, uh, you know, you really... You know, first you understand the nature of the horizon, which is it's all around us, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you certainly do. Yeah. And then, you know, you're just this thing in the middle of, uh, I, I feel like, um, I, you know, that sense of being in a place that's, um, surrounded, I think, uh, by something that it is not. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, also, f- for me, I would want to point toward what I thought maybe, Sparrow, you were beginning to say, but I sort of thought around whatever that might have been and thought about the beginning of the universe or what is as we know it, which mm. began in this um, infinitely um, tight, space you know which was the size of like uh the um pencil point you know at at point you know zero twenty six times the second before um you know it went off but the universe began in an island Hmm. i don't know if it's a true island i don't really understand the beginning of the universe but i think it's like that yeah, but, was the I mean, whole conceptually the way we picture it i guess that i just want to really underscore you know, you have an infinitely small space surrounded by that which it isn't. Yeah. And then, yeah, it is. That's if the uh, Big Bang Theory is correct. Right. And this is a sort of poeticization of it, and et cetera. But, you know, and certainly yeah. the metaphor of an island, I'm just wondering whether it's applicable. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I was thinking of that, too. I mean, the concept of an island, you know, like any concept, I guess, it's like infinitely malleable, like kind of anything is an island. I was thinking today, you know, how John Donne famously said, no man is an island. I was thinking really every man is an island. And I have a person, you have a body, the body has limits. Around you is something that's not you, that, that you are an island. So, you know, in a sense, anything is an island, you know, a telephone you know, in a sense, that's what words do. They create this fictive uh, sort of frame around things. You know, you look around, everything, you look around your room, you're seeing just continuous space. But words mm-hmm. allow you to distinguish them into, uh, this is a bookcase. That's a word, bookcase. In fact, as you look at it, it's just part of this tableau, this continual shape of stuff in front of you. But mm-hmm. words create this ability to kind of isolate, to kind of islandize, you might say, uh, reality into 
components. Uh, well, arrange or make patterns out of fragments. Or um, fragmentize the whole kind of. You, you, know, you know, we've discussed this poem in the podcast, but I, I feel um, inclined to point out that self-portrait in the convex mirror, mm. which is an island, enacts precisely what you were talking about mm. in terms of um, paying attention to the mental content and the visual fragments on your island at any given moment. In the painting, it does that, and the poem does that as well. The painting is mm. Van Eyck. Um, uh, no, Parmigiano. Oh, okay, I forgot. Yeah. Francesco, um, Parmigiano, that's it. I mean, one thing that I would want to say also about an island and the limitations of the uh, island, um, as a structure is that islands are things that you're kind of, that are closely associated with being marooned. Hmm. You know? And I think there is an aspect in which, and particularly in these last years, in which people have been kind of marooned, you know, in their rooms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'd want to point out is that you need a kind of inside and outside, you know, as a structure. Hmm. You need to have something that, where the outside and inside can communicate. Um, and an island is, is a form in which that kind of communication, there's, there's a certain kind of, um, an island is isolated. I mean, you can build bridges, you can do different things to, you know, to get, um, communication. But that aspect of the island is being isolating, I think is really, crucial, you know, to our time. Hmm. And also, well, I, broader thesis about that. Let's hear it. Well, I mean, um, this guy, Peter Halley, the visual artist, mm -hmm. he came up with a, an observation in about 1980 that, um, he's carried through his work um, fairly consistently. And that is the manifestation of cells or prisons or cells and conduits hmm. as the basic building block of our experience that we in contemporary, uh, in our lives, you know, certainly in these sort of American lives, you know, in this last uh, period of time, are really confined to being in rooms that are like cells, enclosures, hmm. and then otherwise on these different paths and conduits, roads, cars are a form of cell. And that uh, um, that is, seems to be a kind of fate that you can sometimes shrug off, you know, get on certain paths in the forest or, you know, deer paths or something like that. But, you know, there's a unerring, it's an inescapable fact that hmm. our contemporary lives are structured in such a way. Hmm. It's interesting because I was reading about Thoreau recently. I read a couple biographies of Thoreau. I read a book about the history of transcendentalists. Trying to understand Thoreau, and it seems like I don't know if this is 
the same thing you're talking about, but it seems like Thoreau had an obsession with trying to find a place that was completely untouched by humanity, that was completely wild. And uh, he went to Maine, which at that time, even now in Maine, you know, in remote sections of Maine, it's still pretty untouched. But back then he was hoping to find the virgin forest. And everywhere he went, there was signs of people. And, you know, a shed or a hunting lodge or a tree that had obviously been chopped down. He, it became a big frustration for him that he couldn't mm -hmm. escape this web of, of human activity. And then I think he finally found a place that was pretty remote, and he kind of, like, freaked out. <laughs> it was kind of like being on the moon, like he couldn't deal with it in some huh. way. It was something he uh -huh. wanted, but once he found it, he couldn't handle it. And, you know, it's... Maybe this is kind of what Sam is talking about, this uh, inescapable hive quality to humans, that we're social beings. We kind of, we're islands, but we also exist in these um, harmonic structures with other people. And you can't really, you can't really survive without that in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like you were talking last session about being a groupist oh myself um, yeah yeah and i do think dancing i think there are certain mediums and certain modalities that one can be with other people that's outside of that model but it's pretty hmm. inescapable once you start looking aristotle um writes about this in i think the book two of the politics um about how when human beings are isolated or islanded, hmm. um, th that over time they uh, cease to be recognizably human. You hmm. know, he constructs this um, spectrum. On one end are the gods. On the other end are beasts. And human beings are you know, somewhere between the two. Uh, but it's, it's possible to... Uh, to move uh, backward or you know toward the beast end, uh, um, and the the circumstance that prompts that is uh, is a protracted uh, isolation because really we are foundationally political beings. That's his argument in, in the, early in the mm. politics, and he mm -hmm. liken he likens the isolated human to the Homeric figure of the the Cyclops. So the Cyclops. <laughs> The Cyclops lives in a cave with uh, with some family members, sort of like the quarantine, actually, interestingly enough. But there's no um, social network. There's no integration of families into uh, into a social hive. The state. There, there, there's no other Cyclops. Well, the, yeah, but they don't. They communicate what through fire or call. I mean, there's there's a very yeah, the, thin web of association, a thin network. Um, there's no polis. There's no city state. There's no association. Yeah thick association hmm. yeah yeah and but it was i recall with aristotle his the thing that distinguishes the human from the beast you know and i'm not sure he uses that term but you know animal is um speech but language which is a consequence of interaction and relationality in the political and it's what we developed or what was developed in us in order to be political creatures, right? To speak mm. and to be heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
to share. Thought about that that kind of speech thing, and I'm glad that we found a medium through which I feel like we've been been investigating it, which is I'm very interested in conversation with other people, sometimes with animals, but you know, generally with people. You're talking to somebody else, and they're talking, and you're talking, and we're weaving as we talk this space Mm. between us. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you feel... The mm. space between you when you talk. And I always feel like conversations are kind of sculptural in that way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. And so the three of us talking, you know, is interesting for me to, to be, you know, in, in a medium in which the thing between us is, is what is this recording that we're making? in which whatever that structure is has an opportunity to be explored. Or the thread of the conversation, the relationship between the different ideas is sort of, anyway, that's what I kind of picture in the space between us, that we're weaving yeah. slightly every, each, each, each uh, uh, contribution slightly changes the the way that the direction of the thread or the color maybe of the thread. Yeah, of the stream. The um it's an immaterial what I'm talking about though is immaterial mm. and it's conceptual. Um yeah. and it's I invisible. guess that space is made of words that are passing through it. Yeah, in a sense it is material because uh I think words that are spoken aloud do move the air molecules. You know, they're actually, it is an action, you know, as you speak, you're, you feel your throat moving. It's a muscular action. It's just, well, in, we can't his, see it. In his physics, uh, Epicurus believed that uh-huh. speech were, were, were atoms, right? Hmm. There was an actual physicality to speech. Uh, atoms in the void, right? That uh, that there's an atomic structure to language. What yeah, do you mean? It does like, sort of feel like words are material that manifest from the void. There mm-hmm. is some um, something to that. You know, you know, it was a crazy theory. I just can't. Yeah, vision of language it was from um the um from Benin from West Africa. The, uh, the Dogon people. I read this book by an anthropologist, Conversations with Ogotemele, which was hmm. published by some French anthropologist, I believe in the 50s, 60s, or early 70s. And it was with this uh, wise man of the Dogon people. And he explained that their theory of language was that if you, if you, if you spoke about someone in the absence of that person, that that language would be loosed out into the universe and would eventually find its way to the person. You mean they like we say something like uh, what is it like my ears are tingling? Oh, your ears are ears are oh yeah, my ears are burning. Yeah, isn't that the expression? Yeah, something like that. that. So, in other words, the person will eventually sort of hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that that or that language is out there. It takes on a life of its own if there isn't someone there to collect it. 
on the auditory <laughs> level, someone to receive the language, that it stays in the it stays in the world. It mm. floats around. Maybe it doesn't find the person it was intended for, but the <laughs> language can be heard. It can be um, discovered by a passerby, or it could find its way to some distant place. It's a it's a lovely idea. It's a lovely theory, and the way it's it's described is uh, quite poetic. So they literally mm. believe this that like somebody. Can, if you go to a place where somebody said something, uh, if you go to like a, a forest where somebody was like reading a poem out loud, later, if you listen correctly, you can hear it like that? Yes. But mm-hmm. interestingly, uh, I read another article that suggested that Ogutemali, the chief, was like the, the uh, village windbag. <laughs> <laughs> and that... <laughs> He was not speaking from a place of authority, but spinning yarn. So, but that, but that's that is what he said. I don't mean to um, question his authority. I, I I found the work to be quite beautiful and convincing. Yeah, I like the idea that speech uh, ch- changes the world. You mm-hmm. know, like in a butterfly effect, um, and that the quality of our speech changes the world. Um, mm-hmm. And that we make the world as we're, and I, but I, but I also really like that idea, Andrew, relative to like language being left around and that you can enter a place, which is a, which is a sort of conceit that I, um, used to operate with, that you can enter a place and then by speaking within it, that you can release the manifest words that are in that place to be spoken hmm. that there's a latent sort of language field uh in in certain places not every place hmm. that you can I, and which you know i did through you know taking those pictures and then simultaneously doing audio recordings that was hmm. one of my things is i would feel like a certain uh um hmm. call and then, you know, would, would, uh, do one of these things. That was the street meet? Uh, yeah, that was transverse. Transverse. Yeah. Because I used to walk everywhere and, uh, I wanted to utilize that time for composition. Hmm. But it all turned out like really I learned how to make a poem on the hoof. Hmm. Um, you know, without needing to change anything. You know, that, you know, that one can speak poetry. Hmm. But you have to sort of collaborate with the place. Is that it? Yeah. And what I would say is that Aristotle was wrong, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, and that it's the capacity of, of humans to make and, but not more than make. I would say to sing. Hmm. Um, oh. you know, that that's what differentiates us from animals who actually have a very rich communicative life and have different forms of speech, you know, you know, uh, um, subtly and otherwise. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what are you saying? Like, actually, they're much better. Like dolphin, cats and dogs, hmm. elephants, chimpanzees, yeah. birds, of course. Hmm. But Sam, you're when saying the human species is the only species that can elevate language to song? But what about yeah, birds? I mean, you know, my whole thing is really um, the only way to freedom is song. Yeah, and I and I believe that the um, the island of the universe is singing. Hmm. 
So you're saying you disagree with with uh, uh, Aristotle how? That you don't think well, people left alone will revert to animal form? You mean? I think that, you know, and this is just me recalling that one, that what makes human beings a political animal is speech. Yeah, that's what he says. That's correct. Like, speech enables us to be political. But I don't know which comes first. Political beings, so we speak, or because we speak, do we become political? I don't think he specifies. Hmm. But I don't know. I haven't read that text in so long. I don't know. It's so funny. A friend of mine was talking about an actual... If you've ever watched a chicken near a road, Mm -hmm. he said, you know, actually there's something to that. That a chicken will really take a long time being on one side of a road, going back and forth and trying to figure it out. And, uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden dart across the road that they act very strangely around roads. But the chicken um, metaphor that I was reaching for was the other one. I chose the wrong basket, mm-hmm. which is like the chicken and the egg. Like, the and that and really egg. is an interesting question: is which came first? Yeah. Oh, politics yeah. or speech? You mean? Yeah. Seems to me speech had to come first. I don't see how. I can't picture like a bunch of people in caves having a political discussion. But they haven't yet um, learned how to speak. <laughs> it's like Flip Wilson used to have this uh, routine that my friends and I were obsessed with. That uh, that Isab- uh, Isabella and Ferdinand, the king and queen of Spain, they had uh, uh, record players, but they didn't have records. <laughs> Nobody invented records. They only rec- invented record players. And then Christopher Columbus said to them, look, I'm going to go to the New World, and I'm going to find Ray Charles, and I'm going to bring his records back, and you'll have something to play in your record player. And then, uh, and then, you know, and then Queen Isabella said, that is a fabulous idea. Chris is going to find Ray Charles. This was like a line that my friends and I would constantly say to each other. <laughs> Chris going to find Ray Charles. And, uh, you know, I don't think... There were record players before there were records, and I don't think there was politics before there was speech. What do I know? But that's just my opinion. <laughs> you know, going full full circle back to the Tempest, you know what strikes me, Sam, is interesting. Um, you had just said uh, the island of the universe is song. What, what was the quotation exactly? You, you, hmm. you put it very beautifully. You said the island of the universe is song. That is singing. Is but, singing. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah. Uh. There's not much singing, but um, I know that in the it, Tempest... But I, you know, but I would say, you know, is song, yeah. That the island of the universe is song. Yeah, mm-hmm. what, I, I believe that is. I, I feel that. What's mm. most enchanting about the uh, the island in the Tempest is that everyone hears music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the characters are talking, you know, they, 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 they either fall asleep to music or music wakes them up, or that, you know, they're aware of having heard music. It's enchanting. And the, and the music is unheard by the audience. Is that right? I believe so, but I believe it is unheard. It's you know I don't know actually. Um, come to think of it, I, I've seen it staged both ways. Oh yeah, yeah. What is that? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. That's T.S. Eliot. 
Oh, I don't know. Is that T.S. Eliot? It's a famous line, I mean, or unless it's Shakespeare. I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know where it comes from. But it's interesting that, and yeah, I like that idea that everybody's on this island hears music. It's almost like predicting music or something. The world we live in now where you go to the supermarket and you just got to listen to these terrible songs from 1989 that you've kind of forgotten about. Oh, I found the um, quotation, by the way. Oh. It's uh, John, from Keats, John Keats. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes play on. Oh, yeah. It's owed to a Grecian urn. Nice. Yeah, there it is. Isn't it? It's owed to a Grecian urn, right? Um, it is a beautiful hmm. quotation. So maybe is that a nod to The Tempest? Could that be? Because you're, I think hmm. you're right that the, the music is only heard by... I mean, it's unheard by other characters. It's, well, I mean, he's talking in a literal way. Keats is talking, I think, about... Somebody is on this urn. There's a picture of a person on an urn playing the uh, lute, and uh, you can't hear it, and it's the most beautiful music because you can only imagine it in your mind. I, that's what I took. Ah. Well, I think also he could be pointing to the sound current, to the hmm. Shabbat. What do you mean? The music of the spheres is a, oh, is a kind yeah. of Western way of um, posing it, hmm. that you know, that there's a song-like quality to the stillness that you can enter on the island of the universe. Yeah, could be. I mean, my guess is that's not the way Keats thought. Although, someone just told me this crazy story about Vivekananda and Wordsworth. I was thinking maybe you guys told it to me. No, but it was my friend Dan. He said the reason Vivekananda is the disciple of Ramakrishna, who, you know, is arguably the greatest guru of all time. And um, Vivekananda was in the university somewhere in India studying Wordsworth. And some uh, professor says to him, Wordsworth would go into a trance when he would write these poems. And Vivekananda said, yeah, a trance. Is there anyone that can teach me how to go into such a trance? And the professor said, yeah, there's this guy, Ramakrishna. Um, and that's how uh, Vivekananda met Ramakrishna. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's really, it really changed my whole uh, feelings about romantic poetry for a moment. I'm a little bit of a kind of romantic poetry hater, but... Um, I started to think, yeah, maybe that is true. Maybe those romantics were on some kind of cosmic level. Do you feel like they were on a mission to bring the universe into earshot? <laughs> I think that they were something. They were searching for something. Something that they couldn't quite reach. I think that they were a lot like rock stars. I mean, they all died young, or generally they died young. And they lived these dramatic lives. I think they were doing something similar to what, um, you know, Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix were doing. But what that is to put a, you know, trying to sort of catch lightning in their hands, I think. They all died young, right? Not all, but most, right? Well, how old was Wordsworth when he passed? Wordsworth was old. He was? Wordsworth huh? was the exception. And I think Coleridge lived a long time, but stopped writing poems. Hmm. Those two kind of started the whole thing, but it's 
Keats, Byron, and Shelley that all they died, died young. young. Yeah, pretty young. I mean, yeah. I have Shelley's like I don't know if it's even his complete works, and it is long. And I think he died at I don't know what thirty four or something like that. Pretty young. In a sailing accident, right? He drowned. Yeah. Speaking of islands. Yeah. Right. He tried to be an island and he failed. Sort of um, also circling back to Mayakovsky's last words in that poem, Andrew. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about the the nature of like Arcadia, the mm. garden, you know, and also like Eden and, um, you know, Utopia and all that kind of stuff. But there's all that phrase, um, et in Arcadia ego, you know, and I am in the garden. Mm. Yeah. Commenting about Mayakovsky's, like, you know, the, the sort of somber end to, uh. A true account of talking to the sun at Fire Island. You know, so it is on the island of, um, on Prospero's Island, mm. too, you know? The snake must, you know, the snake must enter the garden. Um, mm. and also that sensor, you know, of the foreboding of, you know, in Arcadia ego relative to Prospero's, um, fate and the fate of all. What, what is that et in Arcadia ego? And I am in the garden refers to death. Who, who's, where's that from? It's, it's Latin and oh, it's a I trope see. of the middle ages and the kind of, the Garden of Eden, mm. and also, you know, different forms of utopic um, vision or, you know, people um, getting beyond themselves. Um, mm. It was picked up by Poussin, the painter, in the 16th century, in the early, you know, early 1600s, and is a... One of the uh, phrases that's associated with um, the Kabbalah, I thought. Oh, yeah. I deliberately know nothing about the Kabbalah. Well, not quite nothing. I have a sense that there are these spheros, uh, these kind of spheres that form the tree of life that are somewhat parallel to the chakras. And I think that's about all I know about it. Seems like it doesn't want to be known by me, so I'm happy for it not to be known by me. And seems to make no sense to me. Islands can be dark places. I was thinking about uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Oh yeah, that's really oh my good. God. Well, his yeah, island. he was like a Marvel supervillain with his evil island. What the uh, little Saint James? It was called uh, the Fantasy Island of uh, Pedophilia, or yeah, not Pedophilia, but yeah, again, exploitation, rape, and um. I think no one really knows for sure exactly what went on there, but certainly a lot of very important people went there. <laughs> Bill Clinton was seen on the island several times, and uh, others as well, right? I guess Trump went there. I, I don't know. I'm not sure Trump went there. Maybe he knew Jeffrey Epstein more in Palm Beach. That bloviating windbag lawyer, Alan Dershowitz. Oh, yes, that's right. Who I passed in Central Park uh, a few months ago, uh, giving an interview. Talking, oh, yeah? Yeah, giving some interview, you know, with his just, uh, you know, plastic surgery and the hair plugs. <laughs> Real <laughs> monster, huh? Like, really, like, he is, it looked like he had crawled out from some Dick Tracy underworld. 
<laughs> I saw him once, like 30 years ago, uh, at a Barnes and Noble on the Upper East Side signing books, uh. and nobody wanted to buy any of his books. He just sat forlorn behind this little table. This was on 86th Street in Lex. And I almost went up to him. I think it was when I still liked him because I loved that movie. Uh, what was it called? Reversing Places? That, um, oh, Trading Places? No, not Trading Places. <laughs> Reversal of Fortune. Isn't that what it was called? It was uh, that guy, Barbet Schroeder. It's, uh, it, where, uh, it's a true story about Klaus von Bülow uh, trying to kill his wife. And uh, being defended, maybe, by the heroic young Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.